0: to the Transparency Project Radio on the Inside Lens Network, with programming dedicated to bringing attention to unsolved homicides and suspicious deaths. If you have a question or comment for today's guest, please call in at 646-478-0982. My name is Denny Griffin and my co-host is Delilah Jones of ImaginePublicity.com. Good morning, Delilah. Good
1: morning, Denny. Hope all is well. Um, Just a a real quick plug for the Inside Lens Network. We have an archive of about almost 700 shows because we've been around a long, long time. And we hope that you'll listen to us on wherever you get your podcasts, iTunes or, or Blog Talk Radio or wherever. And we hope that you will subscribe and leave us a review and Five stars and all of that good stuff. Um, but I just want to let listeners understand that some of our podcasts on the network highlight criminal cases, and some of those cases may be open investigations. But our intent is to allow families to present their information for consideration by listeners. Our podcasts and our hosts in no way represent our guests. We don't claim to solve your cases, nor do we wish to jeopardize any open investigations. Our guests present their own information. And while we might suggest some resources and assistance, we're not liable for what they do with those suggestions. So, um, I'll turn it back over to you, Denny. Well, thank you, Dee. Um, Following the tragic death of
0: his daughter, Molly, Larry Young embarked on a mission to get legislation passed in Illinois to benefit survivors of victims of homicides or suspicious deaths. His efforts led to the passage of what is referred to as Molly's Law. House Bill 6083 extends the statute of limitations for wrongful death cases and allows a lawsuit to be brought within five years after the date of the death or within one year after a criminal case against a perpetrator concludes, regardless of the verdict. House Bill 4715 increases the fines for public bodies for not releasing information that has been requested under the Freedom of Information Act, $10,000 plus $1,000 for each day information is withheld and uh, very important here I believe uh, that what happened in Illinois with these laws is an agency uh, and we'll be talking primarily about police agencies cannot simply reject a FOIA request and refuse to provide information with the uh, citing the open case exemption. They not only, uh, the burden is now on them in Illinois to prove that the case is open and active. And that's a a key point. Uh, Larry joins us today to discuss recent developments in Molly's case. Larry, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you, Denny.
0: Um, What I'd like to do, Larry, is I, i I'd like to just kind of turn things over to you and let you, um, if you want to give us some, uh, for anybody who hasn't heard of Molly's case before, you know, a brief description of what happened and then uh, what's happened since and and where the case stands today.
2: Well, from the documents we received for you, uh, we have uh, found that uh the suspect who was a Carbondale police dispatcher at the time was supposed to be at work that morning at seven and he called 911 at nine and we found that what transpired earlier that morning uh, at around 3 a.m is he got a hold of my daughter molly and convinced her to come over and help him because he said he was uh this is his story he was sick from drinking too much the some she arrived around four a.m to help him, and there's text messages to that effect and by 441 am or 445 a.m she was uh, deceased according to the coroner's inquest. Uh, we did, didn't believe that she would go over as a good Samaritan and to help him, and then to her turning the gun on herself like it was tr- the theory was proposed to begin with. The reason we didn't believe that is the day of, uh, that afternoon around 1 p.m., I had a discussion with the lieutenant on the Illinois State Police that took over the case. And uh, he told me that Richie, the suspect, was not cooperating and that uh, he didn't call in late for work. And that, uh, he, the Carbondale Police allowed him to wash his hands and change clothes at the scene. So they botched the case somewhat. So we went on, we started on a mission to get to the truth. And uh, after three long years of fighting to get the records, we got a lot of the records and still don't have them all, but we got a lot of the records and uh, they indicated homicide. And there was a lot of uh, facts of the case. We were not told as a victim's family, as it was going on that we found in the records that were forensically analyzed. And some of those facts, I have a sheet here that I have run down. The bullet trajectory was in the top left side of the head at a downward angle, and Molly was right-handed. Molly's right hand was in a clenched fist when they found her. Uh, Multiple bruises were on Molly's foot, knee, thigh, and contusions on both sides of her head, indicating a struggle by the pathologist report. The suspect claims he was in the same room, but never heard the 45 caliber gu- gunshot. His gun go off, or woke him up. He let Molly lay dead for four hours after that. Molly had for before, before he called 911. Molly had no gunshot residue, or injury, or b- blood backspatter on either hand. Molly's fingerprints were not on the suspect's gun found at the scene. Molly's body was moved before first responders arrived. The suspect had blood spatter and transfer on his pajama pants that he was wearing during the incident. The suspect had GSR on his street clothes and pajamas that he was wearing when he was taken into custody. The suspect had two fresh six-inch bloody scratches on his side, and the suspect's DNA was under Molly's fingernails, indicating a struggle. The suspect's and Molly's DNA were in the same drops of blood on his comforter. Text messages from the suspect's phones were deleted. Many crucial texts between the suspect and Molly are obviously missing from the UFED of Molly's phone. The suspect's phone wouldn't communicate with two different UFED devices used to extract deleted text messages. It was taken to the FBI and they wouldn't communicate there either. The only suicide searches found appeared to have been planted on Molly's computer at home while she was out with friends at a concert at 2 a.m. There was a text message back and forth between Molly and the suspect at 1246 a.m. that morning, 13 seconds apart from the time that suicide searches were placed on her computer at home. She was at a concert talking to the suspect, saying her purse is up by the stage at 13 seconds away from a suicide search. The suspect was suspiciously calm and reported Molly's death on the 911 call as a drug overdose. Immediately following the 911 call, the suspect called his lawyer to the Carbondale Police Station and has refused to be interviewed by Illinois State Police Investigators since the incident happened. On March 2nd, 2012, the same day the victim received a positive pregnancy test, the suspect posted on his Tumblr page the following quote from the son of Sam, huge drops of lead poured down upon her head until she was dead. The 911 call was placed at 9.02 a.m. by the suspect's roommate, Wesley Romack. The t- time of death was determined, according to the inquest, to be approximately 4.45 a.m. The inquest held 10 months later, in J- January of 2013, ruled the case undetermined. But all of these documented facts I just told you were not read at the inquest. Pretty well uh, goes through the case, you know, as it happened. Then we started our struggle to get information. Now, all these are documented facts I received that in 2013 up to 2015, all the way up to last year, actually. Uh, receive records through a battle in FOIA. We filed a wrongful death suit, uh, three months after the two year statute limitations ran out because we had no records at that time. And we tried to use that as an argument in the wrongful death. And they were the court local district court wouldn't allow that argument. We uh, tried to use equitable tolling, uh, which is, uh, the time clock starts from the time of you receive the records, not from the time of death.
1: So, we realized
2: there was a real problem with uh trying to uh find the truth in a in a case because uh, they could hold the records for two years and then everybody's everybody's off scot free except the suspect, which was no statute of limitations on murder so we have been a constant battle since then, and my most recent Letter of determination by the attorney general told them to turn over, told the Illinois State Police to turn over the records to me, or explain why. And they 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 went silent, like the suspect has. They uh, they will not talk.
1: I'm sorry. Can I interrupt one second? I just have a question to clarify something, um, and maybe I just didn't hear you. Now, in Molly's case, was was this ruled suicide, or was it ruled a murder? And no charges have been filed.
2: Well, no charges have been filed. Uh, the suspect was taken into custody—at least what I would consider custody—is held for 14 hours that day in the Carbondale police station, and his roommate was held in an interview room for six and a half hours. So I'm assu- I'm assuming they had probable causes. They wouldn't have done that, but uh, there's plenty of probable because we'll find out now. But the uh, question was, again...
1: Is uh, it ruled, is her case a ruled a suicide or a hom- homicide?
2: There was no ruling. The ruling was... Uh, the, they, the pathologist's report in their conclusion said, based on the, and this is done the following day, based on what the investigators have told her, uh, this could be classified as suicide. They told her that evidence showed self-inflicted. Uh, but then later on, the coroner decided to have an inquest 10 months later, and he, uh, the jury, ruled undetermined based on, we weren't allowed to ask three questions in the inquest. None of the key witnesses were brought in to the inquest. And we asked three questions because they didn't even tell the trajectory in the inquest. We, we were asking them at the end of the inquest proceedings, and they hadn't even told the trajectory. There you know, there's several things, key pieces of evidence, and what I documented facts that indicating homicide, they didn't tell any of this. They All they did is read out of Molly's journals that were re- written uh the last entry was nine months prior and they're written as far back as three years they said but i've seen now it's eight years so they read depressing thoughts out of molly's personal journals that they uh seized uh that's basically what the majority of the inquest held so once we started getting into the trajectory trajectory and the, uh, his post on his social media posts and his uh, things like that, the actual things we already knew, uh, then the jury started asking questions about how could she possibly shoot herself with her left hand, non-dominant hand on the top of the head on the left on the left side, you know. So they're asking those kind of questions, and they're real undetermined due to lack of evidence presented.
0: Can I ask a question now, Larry, before we move on? Um, yeah. The coroner's inquest would be one thing if certain information wasn't presented, but the police obviously have it all. I mean, they they did the investigation and so forth, and they, they know all of this stuff. And I, I don't know. It, it just seems, given everything you've told us, uh, that this wouldn't be ruled a homicide is, uh, is kind of puzzling to me. Let me let me put it that way. Um, I just don't really understand how there can be much doubt. Uh, Delilah, you you've heard what obviously the police at least knew, if not if not the coroner or the coroner's inquest. Um, do you see how this could be? could not be considered a homicide?
1: Not really. (laughs) I mean, unless there's some sort of circumstances that, that, well, Larry, you said that because it was lack of evidence,
2: that it was ruled
1: undetermined instead of homicide.
2: They didn't have enough evidence. None of these forensic facts, they did 19 lab tests. 19 forensic lab tests were done. And all of them show homicide. I guess they were doing the lab test to prove suicide, and and the process proved homicide. You know, because a lot of lab tests, like her fingerprints on the gun, gun gunpowder residue on her hands, they bagged her hands at the scene. They did everything it seems like to prove suicide, which you you could have gunpowder residue on your hands even if you didn't fire the weapon, if you're in the same vicinity. But she had none. So what it, in, in the essence, what happened is during the forensic lab testing that took uh, the last test was done in November, nine months after it happened, uh, they, proved, uh, they disproved suicide is what it bas- basically happened. They tried to prove suicide by anything they could find forensically, and they couldn't find anything forensically that proved suicide. All they could find was her circumstantial, which was her uh, uh, text messages that were in her phone. Uh, and the day before, and then uh, the suicide search on her home computer while she's at the concert. And those, they use those to for their basis. Of, well, we believe she committed suicide because, well, I don't know that they, I mean, the case is still open right now. It's, it's not active. It's not been active since 2012. And we're trying to get it activated by uh, getting with a, you know, uh, 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 we can't even get an investigator to talk to. We haven't been able to for four, or five, four years now. But.
0: Uh, Larry, I got, I got a couple of more questions, but one point I wanted to raise before I forget it is regarding FOIA requests, uh, and you pointed this out to me previously, that you don't want to just use uh, documents. Documents will be written Right. documents. Uh, And it's very important when you're looking for information to hit to use records, which would include uh, like 911 calls and and that type of thing, as opposed to just going for documents. Uh, Do I have that
2: correct? Yes, and that's where uh, when I initially I I didn't even know what FOIA was when I started this. I actually a reporter explained it to me what it was. And he actually got every record before I did on every inch of the way, you know, so I was able to use that as an argument too, because he's reporting on it with actual records while I'm in an appeal trying to get them. And, uh, I said, I call him up and say, well, how how did you get this information? Well, they, they turned it over. They didn't, I didn't have to peel it or nothing. I'm going, they'd turn it over to a reporter and not to the, the executor of the state. You know, uh, yeah. a- anyway, to go back, uh, in there's always definitions in a statute of what, you know, in your compiled statutes, there'll be a definitions in there. And look at definitions of what records involve. There'll be electronics, uh, photographs, stuff like that, that really isn't – documents is a small part of records. there's a there's a 911 call that's not really a document the uh and if you ask for that they they use those it seems to at least that they use the wording you use and just respond to that only and not to they know what you want but the, if you don't specifically have it spelled out the way it should be they circumvent you so the investigation, of
0: course, because it's a, a hom or not a hom because it's a death, uh, undetermined death case, is still considered open. Technically, it's open, um, but you feel it's been inactive uh, for the last several years, and you're trying to get a second look, if you will, or or to reopen the case. Case now. Uh, you're dealing solely in that regard with the uh, with the Illinois State Police, or do you have other agencies uh, that you're working with as well?
2: Well, uh, let me give you an example of documented uh, written responses that the, the the status of this case, starting with the day it happened. Carmel in the coroner's report, the Carbondale Police Advice Scene is considered a crime scene. And the Illinois State Police will handle the case and process the scene. Uh, The pathologist report leaves the cover page due to or as a consequence of, she left it blank. She didn't put manner of death. She put the gunshot wound, but she didn't put manner of death. I'm waiting, and and then another on 11-15, 2012. I'm awaiting the reports from the crime lab. Until I receive them, I cannot make a decision. This case remains open until the forensic reports are received and analyzed. And that's the state's attorney at the time this happened. That's his letter to the attorney general, and that was dated 11-15-2012. So he's still writing letters to the attorney general on November of 15, 2012, saying that he has to wait until... He receives all the forensic reports. The only forensic report he received after 11-15, 2012, was uh, blood spatter on the bottom of uh, the suspect's pajama pants, which are 50-plus droplets on each leg, is what that uh, lab report says. And uh, so I don't understand why he would write a letter to the attorney general saying that, and he's waiting on lab, lab reports, and there's only one lab report that came in after that. And then on 1127, after the case was presented by reporting agent, Special Agent Aaron Cooper and Captain Scott Rice, it was determined that the case would need to remain open with 18 Illinois State police officers in a meeting. That's a uh, report from a meeting they had held on the case. That was on November 27, 2012. It said uh, the coroner's jury on 131-2013 found the manner of death to be undetermined. Uh, the coroner's report dated 222 2013 says manner of death undetermined. The case is currently under review by the Jackson County State's Attorney's Office and is pending adjudication on May the 2nd, 2013. This case will not be closed until a verdict has been reached, as it is likely additional investigative work will be necessary. Uh, These are all quotes out of correspondence I received, and most a lot of it is regarding FOIA requests. Uh, On the 29th of May 2013, none of the evidence we currently have will be returned or destroyed. Without a final resolution to the case, the evidence we have will eventually be transferred to our statewide evidence vault in Springfield. on august twelfth, twenty thirteen, I have no authority to close a state police investigation and did not do so in this case. The case remains open for the Jackson County State's attorney. On August nineteenth, the court further finds, and a court order appointing a special prosecutor, the judge wrote, quotations, the court further finds that the subject matter of this case involves the offense of homicide. Uh, on April 24, 2014, the city, the city of Carbondale is of opinion that this is an ongoing investigation. Uh, the city attorney, on, that's on, from the city attorney on April 24, 2014. Uh, the special prosecutor, in his report, writes this, this remains an open case. This allows anyone to still come forward with information that would advance the theory of homicide on October 31st, 2014. The death certificate of Molly's that I obtained in June of 2015 says manner of death could not be determined. The city is of the continuing opinion that this is an ongoing investigation. Any further release of information would have the effect of interfering with the investigation being conducted by the Illinois State Police and the Illinois Appellate Prosecutor's Office. That was on July the 7th of 2015. I understand your desire to receive closure for this tragic incident revol- involving the death of your daughter, and I want to reassure you the Illinois State Police investigative team is committed to seeing that justice prevails in this case. I appreciate your patience as we work to resolve the case. That was February 15, 2017, the commander of the state police. The matter remains open such that if additional evidence surfaces, we would respond, according to the special prosecutor's office dated uh, February 3, 2017. So I really don't see that they ruled it suicide at all. and i don't uh, the problem is, is there's no active investigation since 2012 and i have a letter from the commander of the illinois state police saying that yeah that
0: uh, that last quote you read was that they would spring into action if new evidence uh, was developed but if nobody's doing anything uh you know except you what are the chances uh, well something's going to get to them
2: we requested a meeting with them to present what evidence we have discovered in the files that they may have overlooked and also what uh, evidence we have discovered they don't know about and uh, they won't meet with us so to, so far today i in fact yes as of yesterday i have someone contacting the governor's office a uh, legislative person contacting governor's office to get them order them to meet with us to hear our evidence. Uh,
0: yeah, I can't help but say, Larry, I, that I've I've been working um, on this Patrick Russ case for well, this is my eighth year now on it, and the similarities are so. Uh, stark here that it's really amazing to me Patrick's death is an undetermined death uh, I and other people have done a lot of independent investigation and tried to get the, uh, the law enforcement agency that's handling us to, uh, to meet and the investigator keeps saying he doesn't want to be influenced by any outside uh, uh persons or information he wants to do his own thing do his own investigation and and so forth so he he won't meet he won't listen to what we have to say Um, we put a call into the district attorney Uh, there is a new district attorney uh, now in that county Uh, we had met with the old uh, the prior district attorney and uh, nothing happened so we wanted to take a a shot with the new uh, d.a. And we called about a month ago requesting an uh, an appointment and we're still waiting for a call back on that. And it it's just so frustrating, uh, and, and I'm not a family member, but I like I say I've been in it for eight years, so I'm I'm very close to the uh case and to the uh, to the family and it's just uh as you're talking I, I can see the Rust case uh, you could be describing that as well and it's maddening to me and I'm sure it is for you Um, uh, and I want to learn a little bit because you are very uh, uh, you know not giving up you're leaving no stone unturned to try to get to the truth of what happened so this idea of going to the governor's office is something that we might uh, uh, use in the Rust case as well I just wanted to mention that Um, Well, In
2: uh, in Illinois uh, And that may be different Other states I haven't studied other states The Illinois State Police falls under the umbrella Of the governor's office And the prosecutor's office falls under The umbrella of the attorney general's office So You know those are you know One of them is investigative one of them One of them is prosecutorial so You have to study The hierarchy of who who's in control who's, who's responsible for the different agencies to be able to get someone to do something you know
0: yeah it, I'm just curious you say they won't uh, they won't meet with you to discuss the case um, which is obviously a, a, not a good thing but other than that do you have a good relationship with them or, or isn't it so good well,
2: from the start, we they've never talked to us. They, they refused to. Uh, about, I see, in 2012 in September, actually started in July of 2012, I contacted the Attorney General because they wouldn't talk to us. They wouldn't meet with us. And the Attorney General said he could help with that. And he uh, actually got a hold of the Lieutenant Colonel on the State Police Force, and they he called me himself and he asked me what's the problem was. And I told him we have, uh, you know, as many as 10 lab tests that they're saying that they're waiting on them to come back. They're waiting on them to come back. And I said, how long does it take in a murder case or possible murder case? And, uh, he said, well, that's our fault. He said, I should, they should already have them back. And they, so he said, I'll make, I'll check it out for you. Well, he checked it out and, uh, he called me a couple weeks later and said, uh, uh, at first, he had me send him what lab tests we're waiting on. We're waiting on everything. There wasn't a single lab test back. And uh, he, he called me back and said, we're going, they're going to have a meeting. I told him to have a meeting with you because we hadn't had one yet. It was all the way into June, August by then. He said, I'm going to have a meeting with you, and he, he, the commander of the state police would be calling you for the meeting. So our whole family went to the meeting, about eight of us, and uh, the commander and the chief investigator were in the meeting, and and uh, you got to remember we didn't know that he called it in as a drug overdose instead of a gunshot wound. We didn't know he called that in until 15 months later. So at that time we didn't. I knew because I had a, co- a recording of the police scanner records, that I knew somebody did. So I I brought that question up in the meeting. Who uh, who called it in as a drug overdose? And they said, uh, "How do you know that?" I said, "Because I got a recording of your of the police kind of records." And somebody called it in as a drug over. Well, where'd you get that? I said, "I got it through a reporter." And they, any reporter can get it. I could get it if I would if I go on there 30 days within 30 days after it happens. And that's another thing you can tell your readers. There's a there's an online site, or your listeners, there's an online site that you can go to. And you can get any police scanner for the, any place in the world for 30 they save them for they keep them for 30 days so if you do have a recent one that's a, that's how reporters get their information a lot of them so I got that I asked a question
1: Larry do you know the website of that that you're talking about you know
2: go back okay. to my records because I mean, it's been a long time since I've got the I got the recording, but the name of the website escapes me right now. I don't have. That's fine. If you can
1: update us on that whenever you get a chance, we'll make sure that other people are aware of it as well. Thank you. All
2: right. So I said, "Can I listen to the 911 tape?" And they said, "No." 911 call. I said, "Well, can I see a transcript of it?" And they said, "No." So they proceeded to read out of Molly's journal for an hour straight of her depressing thoughts, talking about her mother, her mother was there, talking about her mother, you know, uh, teenage, uh, you know, a lot of that was written when she was a teenager, Uh, you know, teenage angst, it's it's one person referred to it as. And they proceeded to read out of that journal for almost an hour straight without telling us any of the forensic facts. they So then, I can, I, after that, I'm in this battle before you. I finally get the forensic uh, lab tests in there and not a one of them were done at that time. They hadn't done any. They didn't do any until the Lieutenant Colonel called them and told them that they need to turn, You know, they're telling the newspapers are waiting on lab tests, but they haven't they even submitted them. You know, there's no lab tests back. The first one that came back was their fingerprints weren't on the gun. And it was it came back that day, the day we met. They didn't tell us in the meeting, they called me the next day and told me. So the portrayal of how it happened doesn't match the forensic facts of what how it happened. And that's why we don't understand. We don't I mean, as a victim's family, how do you understand that they portray that there's no evidence of homicides yet. They got all this, they haven't got it yet at the first meeting. And then they release the 911 call 15 months later because they know it's very incriminating to call it in as a drug overdose. But if you're a, if you're a, if you're a police dispatcher, you know, if you're, covering a, if you're covering a crime scene up, that all of the news media is sitting out listening to the police scanner radios. And once they hear a gunshot wound, they're gonna come running to that address. If you call it in as a drug overdose, no one's going to come. So it's part of a crime scene staging thing. You know, everybody says, "Why do call? Why would he call obvious gunshot wound in as a drug overdose?" That's why, because he doesn't want the media to come running because they want to. They don't want the media to be in on it, y'all, to see what's going on. So you know that's Larry.
0: A- I just wanted to ask: Has anybody ever? Given you an explanation of how they account for Molly's fingerprints not being on the gun, uh, no gunshot residue, all, all these kinds of things from the, uh, from the tests. Uh, have they ever told you how they explain that? Uh, did they try to explain it away somehow or they just ignore it?
2: Well, they had a press conference. They held a press conference. the prosecutor did when there's so much public outcry in August of 2013. And the commander of the Illinois State Police was at the other about eight police officers, state police officers, standing behind him at the press conference. And he says, uh, "I'll let the commander talk about gunshot residue." And he goes into this long talk that he's not an expert, but he said you can Google it. You can Google gunshot residue, and he said it'll be on everything in the room. You know, it spreads out all over the room, concentrating closest to where it's at. But he ignored the fact that she had no uh, gunshot residue on her her hands. He was saying that the suspect, if he had gunshot residue on him, it wouldn't prove anything. Well, that's true. But his truth, he was telling the truth, but he wasn't telling the, the negative, positive, whatever you want to call it. You know, it, the shooter will always have gunpowder residue on their hands. But everybody in the room could have residue on their hands. So they explained the way GSR that way, that that no GSR on her hands. Her hands were bagged at the scene, preserved. It's all in the evidence now. Uh, He washed his hands. They let him go in the bathroom at the scene and wash his hands. And he washed them in the police station before they took the GSR test. So he had no GSR on his hands. the fingerprints on the gun, they explained that away that, well, no matter what kind of, you know, there aren't always fingerprints on the gun. You have to have at least three ridges to uh, get uh, comparable fingerprints and, you know, be a for sure fingerprints. And the problem is the gun was wiped down. It was clean. There's no blood back spatter on it. There's nothing on the gun. You know, the gun was wiped down. Had the gun not been wiped down, you would see whether a right-handed person shot it or a left-handed person shot it by the black spatter impressions. But when you stage a crime scene, when you cover you know, when you don't report a death for four hours, you know, she died at 440 and uh, he didn't report it till 9 o'clock, so you got four or five hours there to do whatever you want to, you know, with the crime scene, you can stage it. He moved the body. He moved the body on top of the gun. He said he didn't see the gun. That's why he called it as a drug overdose. Well, before he moved the body, he seen the gun because it was in wide open space unless he put the gun there. You know, so there's all kinds of issues with the gun itself. As far as, I mean, if he wiped the gun down, you're not going to have fingerprints on it. They said there are cases where the people, they've tried to identify fingerprints of the shooter and there's no fingerprints on the gun, but. You know, you have to look at all those cases and say, well, how many of them were staged? How many were wiped down? How many erased the evidence or tried to? So he had two six-inch scratches on his side, uh, and the and they did they didn't send in his DNA till October of 2012, and the lab lab the forensic lab technician. I have you know correspondence where he said we have male dna under our fingernails where's the suspect's dna where's his DNA? buccal swab you know is and uh, that and so those inter-office emails are in an argument over who who didn't send those in and then they finally send them in and they establish it's uh, the suspect's dna under her fingernails along with two other males so we're trying to get them to at least check his roommate's dna or do some kind of dna testing to uh, establish who the other two male DNAs are because she didn't live with any males. She was living with her grandmother and mother.
0: If if the body was moved, and especially if the gun was wiped down, uh, did the police say that they would even consider uh charging anybody with tampering with evidence uh, that certainly nope. should be something that
2: they haven't mentioned well, that. Huh? Their excuse for that was is he moved the body to give CPR and uh and that was his uh, what they call excited utterance he never was interviewed by anybody but he was telling his coworkers at the police station what he, what happened so they wrote it down and he said he moved the it didn't say he didn't say he moved the body to give CPR somebody else said that and we can't figure out who said that it, it just the crime scene investigator said i was told he moved the body to give CPR but there's no evidence of him giving CPR cuz her mouth had blood streaks coming out of it i've not looked at the photos myself but i've had uh, experts look at them and the, there's no smeared blood on her mouth and uh so there's no evidence of him giving CPR or attempting CPR, even. But yet, that was his excuse. That was his alibi or alleged alibi, whatever you want to call it. Uh, he actually told his coworkers in the station, and they wrote it down that he got two six-inch scratches while attempting CPR.
0: Uh, CPR uh, came in handy, or the uh, using it as an excuse for everything, didn't it?
2: Well, she was dead and cold to the touch four hours. She was dead for four hours when he attempted the CPR, if his alibi was correct.
0: And he claims that even though he was in the
2: same room, he did not hear the gunshot? Yeah, he said he slept through it. A five nine Model 1911 semi-automatic, he slept through the gunshot. And when he
0: looked at the body he didn't notice anything to do with the gunshot he just assumed it was a uh overdose well they
2: explained that away that the room only had a stringer of green christmas lights and it was dark in the room but we have the crime scene photos now and and there's two an overhead light with two light bulbs in it that was shining brightly and the sun was shining through the window so the room was daylight when, when he woke up if he, if that's when he woke up. he he also said blood was streaming from her nose. He told one of his coworkers, well, blood's not streaming four hours after you're dead four hours.
1: His roommate
2: came home. His roommate was at work and he came, he got off work at 530 that morning. He came home. He says he came home, seen Molly's purse and shoes in the floor and peeked in Richie Minton's room, the suspect's room, and didn't see where Molly's body would have been laying had she been deceased yet. That's the exact words.
0: And uh, you, were, you were too late uh, as far as filing a wrongful death suit at that point. That's been changed now, but at, but at the time of Molly's death, uh, by the time you attempted to file the statute had already
2: run well there's there's a lot of issues with that in itself uh you know there is an equitable tolling and most attorneys know it uh when you follow first of all you don't usually follow wrongful death suits in a in a murder case that the prosecutors uh took an oath to see that justice served so there's no case law to support a wrongful death suit to begin with I've talked to several attorneys, at least in Illinois, there's no case law. So what you have to do is prove equitable tolling and fraudulent concealment. So without any records in your hand, when you walk into the hearing to start the wrongful death suit, how are you going to prove that? You can't say he said, she said. So that's why they extended it to five years because we had no records at that time. And uh, the only official thing we had was the inquest so anyway to go back to that uh, equitable tolling says that the time clock will start the day that you get the records the day same as discovery in a medical malpractice. you know they discover the lawyers go in and discover do discovery to discover what happened get the official records well in a murder case you've got a battle because that's could be an active and ongoing investigation. You know, you know, there's a lot of records they don't want to give out because they, it will affect the case and, you know, all that. So in order to, the argument has been successfully argued that equitable tolling would be in effect because we don't have the, we can't get the records because of the active investigation. So therefore the, the first day we got the records was July the 15th of 2013, and that's when the equitable tolling would say that the 2 years statute of limitations starts, the time clock starts ticking. But they wouldn't accept that argument. No, no real reason why, other than when we gave our closing argument, our lawyer gave our closing argument, the judge allowed him two weeks to turn in the closing argument because their lawyer presented case law on medical malpractice the day of the hearing and no one had a chance to review it. He didn't, he didn't present it beforehand like he should have. So the judge allowed us two weeks to return in the closing argument and our lawyer turned it in in eight days and it was stamped by a circuit clerk. But the judge made his decision saying he didn't receive the closing argument. So he made a decision to deny us the equitable tolling argument because he never received our closing argument yet the circuit clerk did. So, you know, it just went on and on. It's it's a... Uh, I don't understand it. I, I, I didn't know justice was for the interests of certain people. I thought it was supposed to be for the interest of the people of the state, of, you know, the state you reside in. I didn't know it's... I'll, I'll play judge and jury before it ever comes to a uh, head i'll play judge and jury uh, whether i'm the investigator or the prosecutor i can decide whether this is they're guilty or innocent ahead of time you know they should present the evidence to a grand jury and let them decide and they, they actually have the power at least in the state of illinois again to require further investigation but we can never got it brought to a grand jury
0: so a, a grand jury has never heard this evidence. The only body that's heard it really would have been the coroner is what, whatever they heard. They apparently didn't hear everything. But a grand jury yeah. hasn't uh, hasn't heard this. Right. Um, now, and I, hopefully this will be an educational moment for me. Um, and, and I understand that there's different laws in different states and so on, but... Um, under your circumstances, uh, I, I know you're not giving up on this. I, I know that's not going to happen. Um, are, are you planning or do you have some plan to, uh, you know, uh, other than the governor, that, that's obviously one option. Um, do you have other irons in the fire uh, to try to bring this thing, get it reopened, or maybe get a grand jury, uh, that type of thing?
2: Well, you know, I, and, and I use that misnomer of reopened all the time myself, but it really isn't reopening the case. It's getting a fur- uh, further investigation. You know, Re- getting, reactivation uh, might loose be the end. word. Tying yeah. up the loose ends on the investigation. Right. Uh, then bring it to a grand jury. Uh, I would at least, I guess you you have a trust issue. You know, you start getting a trust issue going and you've, uh, you've dealt with the same people throughout that are, seem to be biased and trying to let the perpetrator off, you say, would they present the evidence to a grand jury like they did the uh, coroner's jury? So time time has a way of changing things. You know, like the commander of state police at the time that was at the scene, he's, he took an early retirement right after this. The lieutenant that was at the scene for the state police, he took an early retirement. The chief investigator took a demotion to trooper. Uh, the the police chief of Carbondale got fired, and he blames it on our case and another case, two cases actually. Uh, the city manager got fired right after that. The mayor left town. The chancellor of the university left town. You know, all these people jumped ship. You know, that might be involved in influencing no trial. So as time changes, you have different faces, you have different people involved, and possibly you will get a chance to have your day in court. You know, that's what we're hoping and praying for, is that we have our day in court and get an impartial a person that's not. I, sometimes you say, did their ego get in their way? You know, are they saying, you know, because... We fought it and proved it and got enough proof that their egos don't, you know, I've been told it's institutional protectionism, you know, that we don't want to get egg on our face, so we won't take it now. You know, you have all kinds of theories as to why there's this block or blue wall or whatever you want to call it. We don't understand it. No one understands it, why it's being done, other than egos.
1: You don't think there's anything being covered up somewhere? There's there's obvious some kind of, like you say, the blue wall of protection around this case for everyone to just kind of jump ship as as they did, or you know, take demotions or whatever. Um, what is your theory, Larry? What do you, what do you think's
2: going on here? Well, I believe in just as in a lot of cases, there's a there's some ineptness at the beginning. There's some uh, cover-up. There's a, uh, That's my coworker. I believe him. I believe what he's telling me. I'm going to make sure that it isn't even misconstrued as that. So I'll, I'll do some things to get this where it doesn't you know, appear that way. So it'll be a cut and dried case. I think that goes on, uh, especially when it's a police officer involved domestic violence. Uh, I think you know there's what, there's people that have written books about that and studied it for thirty years uh Diane wettendorf I've talked to her personally i that's what I did to begin with is I surrounded myself by with advisors that are uh that are actually know this in and out you know and I have several forensic experts involved that have a lot of, i have them review the case i've had retired fbi agents i've had uh, i've actually went to the fbi agent that did the forensic search on the phones uh, on uh, the suspect's phone and uh, you know i've talked to different people to get their ideas that are actually experts in their field and all of them say that this is a murder and a staged crime scene all of them When I show them the records and the in the photographs A lot of police officers locally believe that, you know, the the chief of the police in my hometown wore Justice Molly wristband while he's working. He has two signs in his yard. Uh, The chairman of the police fire merit board. I was on the board when this happened uh, in my hometown, Uh, he, he has two signs in his yard. Uh, You know, the mayor of my hometown put signs in his yard, you know, on his fence for years, uh, a lot of people believe this is a murder, but there's one person there's one person that's saddled with the responsibility to see that justice is served, and that's the prosecutor ultimately he call he calls the shots he asks for further investigation he has the real control over this over whether justice is served or not so there's there's a lot of underlying Problems. You know, the boy's father works with all these police agencies as a computer expert. Uh, He posted the day that this happened uh, a video clip of uh, the godfather saying, my son will have safe passage if if he gets hung in his cell. If the lightning strikes him, I will hold you responsible. Uh, You know, a lot of threats like that going on on the first father's day after this happened, his son posted uh happy father's day to the man that taught me if they're not breathing, they can't fight. And his uh, dad commented. So, oh, so true. Just so many things that show a, a blatant disregard for the uh, feelings of the family, the, justice system everything and I I don't know I never knew it this way until my case I, I guess you know people are oblivious to what goes on a lot of times there are a few people that you know have have the goes to their heart but a lot of people just say well you know it's not affecting me I don't want you know I don't want to get involved
0: Yeah, that's that's a very good point. Uh, most people, fortunately, don't go through these things like you say. They they're oblivious to what happens. Uh, uh, sometimes you get a little cover, unless it's a celebrity type thing. But if it's a you know of local interest, there's a, a mention of the death, and if there's an arrest, there might be something on that. But the the survivors, the families, and so forth are almost forgotten. Uh, no, nobody pays much attention to them. And uh, it, it's, it's, again, a, a very frustrating uh, a situation to be in. Uh, Larry, we're running out of time here very quickly. Um, what, uh, what website can uh, people go
2: to if they want to hear more or learn more about Molly's case? well if they go to if they're on Facebook they can go to justice for molly uh on facebook and there's twenty six thousand members have been for three years now and uh they can join ask to join and we have uh fifteen administrators monitoring the site uh, uh at all you know all the time to accept member- people that want to join and see the facts of the case uh there's a lot of inf- more information on there that I've, we've posted over the years. We started it in 2012, the Jess Schmally Facebook page. And that, that that actually is what is different today than has been, is the difference is there's three things we have today that we didn't have 10 years ago, or at least any. Uh, uh, it wasn't as prevalent as it is now, is that social media. Everybody carries a camera in their pocket and Freedom of Information Act. Those three things are changing the scenery of what's been going on for years, I believe. There's never been anybody had to be held accountable because of those three things that came out now. And before, there was no accountability, no nobody holding them accountable. And now there's networking.
0: Yeah, social media has been... Uh... You know, certainly as far as getting the word out and getting people involved, certainly a, a, a great tool to use. Uh, unfortunately, we're going to have to wrap it up here, Larry. Uh, thanks so much for updating us on Molly's case, and um, well, if, you can, the, oh, if you, you can get back to us with oh, you're welcome. If you can get back to us with that website, yeah, for the police scanner information.
2: Yeah, I'll look that up here and I'll send it to you uh okay i appreciate your platform for people that are hurting that need need to they don't know where to turn and i know there's a lot of them. i, I talk to a lot of them myself and it's the laws need to be changed and to balance the scales of justice back in, equal instead of in favor of the suspect
0: oh you're right and
2: we're uh meeting tomorrow with the
0: legislator here in New York, an Assemblywoman, to try to get the version of Molly's Law introduced to New York State. So uh, keep your fingers crossed for us. All right. I'll, I'll have anything I can do to help. Let me know. Okay. Thank you very much, Larry. And please let us know if there's any uh, other developments because we'll uh, be more than happy to do an update, uh, you know, as things are warranted. And, and the best of luck to you.
2: All right. Thank you, Denny. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye.